That will kind of be our main text for tonight, Hebrews chapter 12. We're also going to dive back into Genesis a little bit, and so you maybe want to, might want to be ready for that as well. As we begin tonight, I want to take you back to April 29th, 2010. The Verizon Heritage Golf Tournament, pro golfer Brian Davis is in a playoff with Jim Furyk. And during a backswing, during this playoff, Brian Davis, he, he swings his club back and he believes that maybe his club clipped a, a, a loose reed that's laying on the ground. And so he called over an official and they checked the video and enough he had. And he'd committed a penalty. It's, it's rule 13.4, moving a loose impediment during the takeaway. His integrity that day cost him some money. Jim Furyk went on and won a million twenty-six dollars that day. Davis had to scrape home with a mere six hundred and fifteen thousand, and it's okay to that's a lot of money. But he cost himself a lot of money through his integrity. Sports talk blew up that week because this guy blew the whistle on himself. And but how many times do we see it go the other way? There's an opportunity to cut a corner or maybe nobody saw that or, you know, this shortcut that I can take may get me to where I want to go and sometimes we compromise or we see people compromise or uh, they've made a long-term commitment, there's a long-term goal that they're seeking but but something comes along and kind of derails them and maybe it's an opportunity for fame or fortune or money or pleasure or security or some other kind of success and so they sell out on the long-term goal for something more immediate. Uh, We talked this morning about the idea that we're running a marathon. We talk about that a lot in Christianity because that's what it is when we're trying to run and stay in something long-term. One reason that the Christian walk is hard is because it's such a long-term commitment. One reason marriage is sometimes hard is because it's such a long-term commitment. And it's because we're always going to be tempted by things that crop up. They get our attention. They look good. they're, They're right there in front of us. And we're tempted. Hebrews 11... We know it as the Hall of Faith. You've got all these people in Scripture. The Hebrew writer is saying these people were faithful. And then you get to Hebrews chapter 12, and it carries this don't give up theme, which kind of correlates with our theme from this morning of pressing on. And so it kind of goes like this. They were faithful, talking about Hebrews 11. Jesus, our example, was faithful, beginning of Hebrews 12. You can be faithful also... And there's a lot at stake. The stakes are very high in this. Right in the middle of Hebrews 12, though, there is this powerful illustration. And that's where we want to begin tonight. This powerful illustration. The context there, the Hebrew writer, he's talking about being faithful, talking about endurance, talking about perseverance. And as he's transitioning to why all of this is so important, you get this about Esau from all the way back in the Old Testament. Notice verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 12. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Esau 
sacrifices his future. Esau destroys his future for one meal. Now, I enjoyed a great lunch today, a restaurant that I had not yet been to here in town. It was wonderful, enjoyed the company, food was great. I'm already getting a little hungry again. And if I don't eat supper tonight, if, if I just have dessert tonight, I'm going to be hungry again tomorrow. I mean, one meal really doesn't stay with you a long, long time. And you think about Esau and you think about him selling out and you think, how in the world could you do that? How could you change your entire future for one meal? But how many times do we see people potentially sacrifice eternity for things that are equally not as in, you know, insignificant, for lack of a better term. So I want to begin tonight by talking about Esau the seller. And I want to go back to the book of Genesis. If you've got your Bible open and, and want to go back with me, we're going to go back to Genesis, the 25th chapter. And, and try to be reminded of some things that we can learn about this guy. I mean, he, he has trouble all the way back in Genesis, and then he makes Hebrews 12 as the example of what not to do. That's pretty powerful. Now, his family... It's dysfunctional. Most families are. Most families, somewhere in the family, we've got some problems. We've got some dysfunction somewhere along the way. Well, this family is no different. We're not given a lot of background regarding how significant the dysfunction may be. But you remember Rebecca is later on going to actually help Jacob in his quest to deceive Isaac. Well, that's pretty dysfunctional. So when you pick up the reading, uh, Genesis 25, long about verse 27, you kind of get an idea of what's going on. When the boys, talking about Jacob and Esau, grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Well, there's a great violation of the first rule of parenting. You don't show favoritism to your kids, do you? And so you've got that going on. And so Esau comes in from the field and he's famished. Notice verse 29. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I'm famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. And that word famished is kind of interesting. When you look that up and when you do some research on that word, you begin to get definitions like faint, parched, which we know that one in the summertime. You've been outside for a while, you're pretty dry, weary, and maybe you've been there. Do you find that you make your best decisions when you're tired, when you're weary, when you're run down? When you've been out and you've been working outside all day, is there anything more tantalizing than coming in and, and smelling a great meal in the house as soon as you come in the door? Because what happens to Esau, his weary, hungry, worn-out state leads him into an awful decision. In other words, his physical craving is the only thing he's listening to. And isn't that what happens sometimes when we fall into sin, when we give into temptation? There's some kind of a physical craving and it, it inhibits our ability to think clearly. It inhibits our ability to make good decisions. In fact, here in the text, Esau actually becomes irrational. Notice verse 31. But Jacob said, first, before I give you food, first, sell me your birthright. Here's the irrational Esau. Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. 
so of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Now, obviously... Nothing good can be said about Jacob here. You know, your brother comes in, your brother's hungry, why not just give your brother something to eat? Probably speaks to how dysfunctional the family really is. But on Esau's side, how irrational. If I starve to death, my birthright will be useless, won't matter, won't be here to enjoy it. You know, what's the guy thinking? Maybe he doesn't really believe that Jacob will hold him to his word. And he may think that Jacob, this guy that stays inside and never goes out and gets his hands dirty, he may think that Jacob is just kidding. Maybe he didn't really believe that God would hold him to his word. Or maybe he just didn't realize that, you know, for as us as Christians, people who are God followers, when, we're, when we give our word to someone, we're also making a vow. We're giving our word in front of God at that point. But whatever the reason, his desire for instant gratification is his downfall. Notice Genesis 25, verse 34. It's a sad verse. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate it and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. That, that word despised, he regarded his birthright as negligible. He regarded his birthright as worthless. He regarded his birthright as distasteful. And be reminded about what went with a birthright. It was the most extensive right that could change hands on the basis of heredity. And because Esau was the firstborn, with the birthright, he had the right to a double share of Isaac's estate. He gets two-thirds, Jacob gets one-third. He also had the right to, to convey this blessing onto his posterity. In other words, if you've got the birthright, it affects your side of the family tree in a major way. It also carried with it the right of the priesthood. In other words, its possessor would be the patriarchal religious leader of his family. And in this case, you remember that promise from God making uh, blessing all nations through you? Well, this, this also carried that promise. And he gave all that up for one meal. It's a classic case of living for the moment. And notice his lament later on. Now, you remember the next thing that's going to happen. Eventually, Jacob, with his mama's help, is going to go in and deceive his father Isaac and obtain the blessing that was also supposed to go to Esau. And so when you get over to Genesis chapter 27, verse 36, you get this lament from Esau after he's gone in and he's pleaded with his father to make things right. The Bible there says, is he, talking about Jacob, rightly, not rightly named Jacob, for he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? So he's in here pleading with Isaac. Verse 36, Esau is just flat out wrong. Jacob did, by deception, take away his blessing. But Jacob didn't take away his birthright. Esau gave it away. That was all on him. Totally within his control. 
and he gave it up. He was a sellout. Now, how do you defend Jacob in this? Why didn't Isaac fix it when he realized that there was deception? Now, there are questions, there are tough questions that go with this. But what we're trying to focus on and what ends up being all the way over in Hebrews chapter 12 is that Esau's own short-sightedness caused his problem. And that's why the Hebrew writer comes back through in Hebrews chapter 12 and calls him immoral, calls him godless, and all in this context of not falling short of the grace of God, not giving up on our walk with God. And so what about us? You know, why this, this reference to Esau right in the middle of a chapter where we're being called to faithfulness and we're being called to running the race with endurance and we're being called to looking, the idea that we're going to look at every situation with our eyes focused on eternity. If you think about mistakes you've made, isn't one of Satan's most powerful temptations the offer of instant gratification. The situation where whatever it is that feels really good right in the moment, it may destroy my tomorrow, but, but it's great for me right now. Isn't that one of his most powerful weapons? And our culture doesn't help because our culture says you need to be satisfied, you need to be gratified, you need it all right now. And lives are being destroyed often physically and spiritually because of that way of thinking. See, even the Hebrew writer realized that, that there are things about sin that are pleasurable in Hebrews 11, in the Hall of Faith, writing about Moses and writing about the decisions that Moses made. In verse 25, the Bible there says, Moses chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Here's the so what of tonight's lesson. For this lesson to work, for this illustration to get through, we've got to understand that anything we do on this side of the grave, anything that we sell out for, is nothing more than one meal when compared to eternity. It doesn't matter whether I sell out and, and, it, and I get 10 years of pleasure or 20 years of pleasure or 50 years of pleasure. If I sell out, it's, not, it, it's like one meal when you compare it to forever. And that's why the Esau illustration works. And that's why it ought to be helpful to us. Like Esau, we stand to lose a lot if we're short-sighted. And so let's talk a little bit about God's call to being sold out. And in Hebrews chapter 3, you get into some of these kinds of things. As there's so much going on and we don't have time to read it all. But I would challenge you on your own to, to study back through this familiar chapter. There's so much good in it. But in the call to be sold out, the first idea from the Hebrew writer is that we need to, to seek endurance like we saw, like we see in Jesus. Notice the first three verses. Therefore, looking back at the hall of faith, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So that comes back to a concept we talked about this morning. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God... Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
See, Jesus keeps us in the game. Understanding what Jesus went through keeps us in the game. Running the race with endurance, it, it implies that it won't be easy. Always. It implies that it may at times be painful. It implies that there will be times when we don't want to run. And that brings us right back to the focus that we talked so much about this morning. Let me give you one more illustration on that. Several years ago, when Carson Palmer was playing quarterback uh, for then Cincinnati, they were in a playoff game with Pittsburgh. Early in the game, uh, Palmer's throwing a pass down the field, and a, a defensive lineman comes in, takes his knee out, and he's done for the day. A lot of uh, there was surgery, there was rehab, and so the next year, when he's trying to come back. They're interviewing about him about that and they're asking the question, how did you know when you were ready to play football again? And he said, when I first got back on the field, I wasn't ready to play football again because when the ball was snapped to me, I could not look down the field, could not focus on my receivers. All I could look at was what was going on right in front of me because I thought I was going to get hit again. And he said, I finally knew I was ready to play again when I could actually take the ball and ignore all the garbage right in front of me and actually look down the field and find my receivers. When I could do that again, when I could get my focus down the field, that's when I knew I was ready. Well, isn't that what we're trying to do? You, know, you think about what Satan tries to put in front of us and all the shiny objects that he tries to dangle in front of our eyes and we're saying, no, I've got my focus on Jesus. My focus is downfield. All this that you put right in front of me right now, I've got to look past that. I've got to look over that. I've got to, I've got to ignore that. The second thing he talks about in chapter 12 is this idea, and we won't spend a lot of time here, but welcoming the Lord's discipline. And for those of us who've reached adulthood, most of us get that. There were times when our parents may have disciplined us in a way and we didn't understand it, we didn't embrace it, we didn't want it. And then finally one day, they suddenly got very smart again. And we looked back and we, we realized, well, that's why they did that. And they were trying to help me. And Notice what verse 9 of Hebrews 12 says. Well, let's start with verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and lived? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. I love that because our parents, and maybe you've done this as a parent, we're doing our best with our kids and we're trying to discipline them, and maybe sometimes we don't even do it just right. We were trying to do what seemed best. If God is disciplining me, He's always doing it just exactly the way it ought to be done. And then I like verse 11. He says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. See, discipline is about life change. And it's not normal to welcome discipline. There's just something within us. And so as we grow, one of the things we're trying to grow into is this idea that as God disciplines me through His Word, I want to try to welcome that because I want positive life change. I want to stay in the race. I want to stay in the game. And then he says, in so many words, you need to do whatever it takes. 
You need to find strength. Notice verse 12. Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See, the Hebrew writer is saying you need to do whatever it takes to find some strength somewhere because it's this idea we're vulnerable when we're tired. We're vulnerable when we're weak. Look at Esau. That's, that's at the core of his issue. He's, he's tired, he's famished, he's worn out. Our need for each other is also magnified again in these verses. Straight paths, he talks about. Placing ourselves in situations where it's easier to succeed. I need to put myself in situations of strength, with people of strength around me. I need to minimize my exposure to, to situations that might cause me to sell out. And one of the biggest ironies for Esau is that home should have been a place of finding strength. Home should have been a place of acceptance. Home should have been that place where he could come in weary and tired and run down and find everything that he's looking for. He found just the opposite at home. We need to have the kind of homes where we find strength when we're weak. But not everybody's blessed that way. And one of the blessings of this home is that if I'm not finding strength in my physical home, hopefully I'm finding that strength in my church home. We're a blessing to each other. And then finally what the Hebrew writer tries to do here, after he talks about all this and then gives us that example of Esau, he says, this is all very important because the stakes are high. There's a lot at stake. And that's where he leads into the Esau thing. He says the grace of God is at stake. That's verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. And we are saved by the grace of God. It's, it's, not, it's not of our good works. It's not of anything we can earn. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, very clear. We are saved by the grace of God. According to verse 15, though, of Hebrews chapter 12, I can lose that, which saves me. If I somehow fall short of it, if I'm somehow not covered by it, and if that can't happen, verse 15 is useless. If that can't happen, verse 15 is bad Bible. And there is no bad Bible. See, the worst thing that anyone can ever allow to happen is to fall short of the grace of God. And as I read Scripture, I see two ways that that can happen. One is if I refuse to obey the Gospel, God makes no promise in Scripture to cover me with His grace if I have not surrendered my life to Him. He doesn't make that promise. So that's one way. But then the second way that we see here is this idea that I sell out. That I don't stay faithful. That I become an Esau, for lack of a better way of saying it. And if I'm not sold out, if I don't have a long-term view of my walk with God, I open myself up to making selfish, short-term decisions that aren't consistent with my long-term goal, which is heaven. The Hebrew writer says, hey, the joys of Mount Zion are at stake here. You ever plan to trip? Maybe a vacation. 
and you got on the internet and you did the research or maybe you ordered the brochures, but you've got all this material and you've, you've planned this excellent trip, you're looking forward to this trip, and when you actually take the trip, the looking forward was actually better than the reality. You ever had one of those? A few years ago, we went up to northern Ohio with some friends of ours to Cedar Point. Anybody been to Cedar Point to ride roller coasters? A few of you? This buddy of mine, Glenn, he kept talking about how great this was going to be. He's like, you, you've never been to a place like this. If you like roller coasters, this is going to be the best. You're, you're going to love this. And I finally kind of told him, you, you just need to stop talking. Because you're building this thing up to the point that there is no way that this, this park is going to be able to live up to what you're saying about it. And in that case, he was actually wrong. The park lived up to everything that he said. But see, that sometimes doesn't happen. When God starts talking about heaven, and when the Bible starts talking about what we're not there, it's one trip that we're going to make where the actual going is going to far and away exceed anything that, that words that we comprehend can, can communicate to us. And so the Hebrew writer sets up a contrast. You remember several weeks ago on Sunday morning, we had that lesson about entering into God's presence, and we went back to Exodus where God says, I'm coming out down onto the mountain, and I'm going to get everybody's attention, and I'm going to make it a big show because I want people to know that Moses, I want them to know that they can trust you. And, and so the Hebrew writer goes back to that. And he says in verse 18, You've not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into the blast of a trumpet, the sound of words uh, was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them, for they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it'll be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. The Hebrew writer says, what we're talking about here, this isn't that. And then he starts to talk about what this is. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to, to, who the, and to the bl sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. He sets up this big contrast. And his readers, they all knew about Mount Sinai. And he says, this isn't that. This is something way more important. And then he says, make sure you don't lose out on seeing the example of people who refused God in the past. In other words, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse Him who's speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from Him who warns from heaven. God put that big show on at Mount Sinai. But even then, he didn't, the, the, the people, they didn't always follow. They didn't always listen. They still refused Him. People died in the wilderness because of their, their hard-heartedness, because of their inability to embrace God and be faithful. He says, don't get lost on you the example there. Verse 26, And his voice shook the earth then, but now he's promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. 
So God warns them with all these things that scare them to death, and somehow He still doesn't hold their attention. They die in the wilderness. Many of them reject Him. But the warning from heaven is a son who came to this earth and lived among us, gave His life, was raised again. And if punishment came to those who refused the word of Moses, can we, can we expect any less if we refuse Jesus? See, Hebrews chapter 10, if you turn back just a couple of pages, verses 28 through 30 kind of describes what we do when we don't learn from these examples. In other words, if we sell out, Hebrews 10 beginning in verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Esau was a sellout. God calls us to be sold out in our relation with him. And so how do we demonstrate a sold out life? And these are verses that are very familiar, the very end of this chapter in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may be offered to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. As the question is, sell out or sold out? When I go to the mirror, I've got to ask myself which kind of life I'm living today. And I've got to be asking myself, am I committed to finishing the race no matter what? Because that's what this is really all about. Jesus secured the victory when He went to the cross. And and our job, what we've been called to, is simply to finish. It was August 1992. Olympics in Barcelona, Spain. Derek Redman of Great Britain, he was favored to win uh, the 400 meter race. And, and some of you probably remember his story. He starts the race, things are going well. He, he's powering down the back stretch when his hamstring snaps and he goes down. And the world kind of watched in horror as this guy who was favored to win, he gets up and he pitifully starts trying to hop on one leg and make a little progress down that back stretch. Well, Derek's dad was there that day. His name was Jim Redmond. And suddenly he realized that he needed to get to his struggling son. And he said, I don't remember a lot about coming down out of the stands out of section 131, row 22. I don't remember that. I don't really remember leaping the fence. I don't remember pushing past the security guards. But see, I was, I was no longer a spectator. At this point, I'm a dad and I've got to get to my son. And so again, as the world watches, you see dad trying to get to his son. And when Derek sees his dad coming, he says, Dad, get me back to lane five. I want to finish. And leaning on each other, the world watched as father and son made their way around that track back to the start-finish line. Derek finished his race. One of the overriding things being communicated to us through uh, Hebrews chapter 12 is that like Derek Redmond, we're never going to successfully finish on our own. 
we finish through not losing focus, not selling out, through leaning on the Lord and His example, through leaning on one another. And the question is, what kind of race are we running? Are we running that kind of a race? Because you've got to remember, Redmond finished the race, but he quite obviously did not win. The big difference for us is that Jesus has already secured the victory and all God has asked us to do is with His help, leaning on Him, to finish. And when we do that, we celebrate the victory that Jesus won at the cross. And so tonight is the song, I believe, is Oh, Why Not Tonight? As you think about life, if somehow maybe you've, in a, in a sense, fallen in the backstretch of life, if you've fallen, maybe you need to get back up. Maybe something's been dangled in front of you and maybe you've been a sellout to sin and, and maybe that sin that you've sold out to, maybe it's got the potential to really damage your future. Maybe the call for you is to repentance, to getting your focus back on that long-term goal. Perhaps you're not in the race yet tonight. Maybe you've not been baptized into Christ. Maybe you're ready to begin your walk. Maybe you're ready to begin your marathon, your race, as it were. Esau did a horrible thing. But the horrible thing we do is if we don't allow the lesson that He leaves us to cause the positive life change that God wants to see within us. Are you sold out tonight to God? If not, how can we help you? If you need to respond, let that be known while we stand and while we sing. Oh, dear, I...